0: sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to
1: Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Oh, goodness. Welcome to episode 32 of You Don't Have to Yell, our second installment in our series on education for the lovely month of March. Now, last week, we spoke with Professor Hillary Green about education reform in the South during Reconstruction. And we learned how an adequately funded public education system improved literacy and incomes amongst both African-American and white students before being dismantled into a terrible segregated mess. And 150 years later, we're still dealing with issues of inequality when it comes to per pupil spending, And the answer to who needs more of it, how much do they need, and who's gonna pay for it is no clearer. So to help lift the fog, I invited Carabo Jackson, professor of human development and social policy at Northwestern University to talk. He's an economist who's done a number of studies on the effect of per pupil spending on long-term economic outcomes. And without spoilers, the good news here is, if you increase funding for public education now, You'll increase the lifetime earning potential of our children by a decent amount. Now, the bad news is, if you start dieting and working out now, you'll probably have six-pack abs in a year. And yet many of us don't, which is the same mentality preventing the aforementioned increase in public funding from happening. Listen on for the details. I'll be back at the end. The paper that that I, I was really intrigued by is this whole idea of, of the impact school funding has, you know, specifically when you look at lower income districts versus uh, what were labeled in the paper as non poor school districts to you know identify the impact it has on outcomes and maybe to start things off and set a baseline for what a positive outcome is. I, you know, I think if you speak to most parents, most of them would say it's either uh, preparing a child for the workforce. Uh, or preparing them for college, or both? And does that more or less match the logic in your study, or were there any of the outcomes you were looking for there?
0: That's pretty much right. I mean, the I think from the broadest sense, you know, the way economists would think about what the aims of education is, is to improve what we call human capital, which are sort of the set of competencies and skills uh, that we are required to be productive members of society, to be productive adults, living, fulfilling, happy, uh, you know, lives that have a positive impact on everyone else. So that would include a whole host of things. Uh, mm-hmm. Labor market employment would obviously be one of them. Uh, how much one earns would be another measure of that. Whether one is incarcerated would be another measure of that. So there are a host of ways in which one might think about uh, sort of human thriving that would all be uh, some potential benefits of having a good education system, but are that are certainly not uh, well measured by things like test scores necessarily. To some extent they are, but Broadly speaking, I think those are the things that we were thinking about. Yes,
1: yeah, and that was that was one of the things that I, I noted in your paper was you refer to the Coleman study, which for the folks listening was a uh, a survey done back in the '60s to understand the level of equality or inequality, for that matter, uh, across. Uh, geography, race, income in K to 12 education, and and that study really focused primarily on test scores. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. So one of the reasons why we were interested in looking at longer run outcomes was specifically the idea that we sort of know that test scores measure something valuable. It measures you know literacy and numeracy skills, uh, and some to some extent sort of content knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the full set of skills that are required to be a productive adult. So we were sort of interested in the idea that perhaps we should look at longer-run outcomes because it's, an, it's entirely possible that one could find sort of small effects on test scores and find really large, meaningful inf- effects on longer-run outcomes. Having said all that, um, even if you look back at the prior literature, um, that has looked at test scores, with the exception perhaps of Coleman, most of those studies find positive effects of, or should say, most of those studies find a positive association between higher levels of per pupil spending and student test scores. So it is not the case that there's no association between per pupil spending and student test scores, despite the fact that some people would say that's the case.
1: Yeah, it's sort of, but I would say maybe test scores are could be or could not be a leading indicator to the outcome of again, income, workforce, productivity, and so on. Is that right? That is,
0: that is correct. My, my general sense, and this relates to all education research, sort of policy research, is that if we find positive effects on test scores, that generally means something positive is happening. Mm -hmm. But it does not mean that an absence of effects of test scores means there's an absence of positive things happening. And it also doesn't mean that the larger the test score effect, that necessarily the larger the effect on some other outcome that we might care about, such as uh, earnings as an adult. That's exactly right. So it's a a leading indicator of sorts, but I think it it measures a relatively narrow set of skills or set of uh, competencies that are going to matter a lot um, for adults thriving.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, one of the things your your paper makes mention of is you know the variations in K to twelve funding by school district. One of the things I thought of actually as I was reading this is I went to Lake Forest College, um, you know, just on the the North Shore of Chicago, and in Lake County, uh, you have one of the, you have some of the wealthiest suburbs in the United States of America and some of the poorest suburbs in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess my question is, is how wide, if we look at, if we just look at Lake County, for example, you've got Lake Forest, you've got Winnetka, these very wealthy communities, then you've got North Chicago and and Waukegan, which are uh, lower income suburbs. Like what is the disparity in per pupil funding? How wide is that?
0: So it, it, Certainly it varies It varies across states and it varies within states. So if you just look sort of within the Chicago area, mm-hmm. the two examples I typically use when I give talks is uh, there's Rondout District, which is sort of north north, north of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I, I, at around 2014, 2015, they were spending on the order of about twenty eight twenty nine thousand $29,000 per child. So it's a relatively mm-hmm. small district, but you're talking about almost $30,000 being spent per child. Um, by way of comparison, in sort of the southern, south of Chicago, uh, they're spending about 7500 $78 per child. So you're talking of, you know, double, triple the, the amount, the level of spending in a higher income suburban district versus a lower income urban district. So the, the, these are very vast differences in spending. Now, to be clear, those are possibly, those are probably sort of the extremes around the Chicago area, but it, that would not be unusual if you look across other metropolitan areas that you sort of see that there are lower spending, lower income districts that spend a lot less than higher spending districts.
1: And that's, I mean, that's a that's a wider disparity than I than I thought existed. There was a story when I was in Lake Forest, and this could be urban lore. So again, I'll I'll verify it with a friend of mine who still lives in the area, and 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 uh, and edit it out if not. But you know, there's a story about how the state paid Lake Forest to build this fantastic high school. And they didn't like it, so they tore it down and raised money for a new one. That's kind of how the story goes. But yeah, but I mean, again, for the folks listening who may not be familiar with Lake Forest, Illinois, I mean, it's just the level of of wealth there is astounding. I know there were stories of like houses with elevators in it, houses with Mm -hmm. heated you know, underground garages and so on. So it's just a different world entirely.
0: And that's Um, right. I mean- And one thing, just sort of to add some, some context to the conversation is that, you know, sort of consistent with what you're saying, if you go to, a one of these districts that is typically underfunded say like you know like ridge for example Mm -hmm. you're gonna see uh generally you're gonna see older buildings that may have air conditioning that's not functional all the time you Mm -hmm. may have students having to use a makeshift classroom because there's not enough space uh and by that i mean a classroom that may have dual purposes so during parts of the day it's a classroom during other parts of the day it's a gym that kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh you're gonna see Teachers using out-of-pocket funds, their own money, to pay for supplies. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of those kinds of things. You're going to see cases where they will not have a full-time teacher to provide, say, arts. So the art teacher may be about maybe serving three or four different schools in the area. And in comparison, when you go to the ones that are better funded, uh, again, these are they're very tangible things you can observe. Uh, so you 'll see that every you know every classroom is going to look very very nice. The air quality is great there 's air conditioning uh, They have a dedicated staff on there for arts for music for you know physical education uh, and i mean so it's it 's not just it 's not just dollars and cents in terms of you know something you see on a spreadsheet like when you when you visit these different schools the the you can observe the differences and it 's pretty clear that uh, anyone who sees it would pretty much come to the conclusion that a child who's educated in the more affluent environments is having a better quality set of inputs than the than that child who's educated in one of the sort of less well resourced schools.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's a tricky it's a it's a tricky line because I do think the regardless of the level of equity that you try to provide from a public funding standpoint uh, across districts you'll have wealthier areas where people just have more money to give to the schools. And so I think that's always going to have some level of disparity, but I think ideally what you want is again, to make sure that there isn't this wide variation in quality that limits the outcomes of uh, folks who maybe aren't in, you know, as well resourced areas. That's, um, that's
0: that's exactly right. And yeah. uh, you know, and there's historically, if you look at the challenges that have been made against Uh, state school spend, school funding formulas over time. Uh, Mm -hmm. basically, if you look at the challenges to the, to the existing systems in the sort of the 60s and 70s, those -hmm. were typically made on, Equity grounds. They basically made the argument that lower income families did not have access to schools that were as high quality or as well resourced uh, as the schools attended by children from higher income families. And that was Mm -hmm. that was sort of the legal argument um, that was made on most of the successful school finance litigation um, in sort of the 70s and 80s. However, if you look at the 90s, they're made on a very different argument. Now they're most of them are made on an adequacy grounds. So Typically, the way those those cases are argued is that someone will come in and make the case that even if on even if it's true that on average uh, school spending levels look good. Uh, If it's the case that certain students are attending schools that don't even have enough money to provide an adequate level of education for their children, um, Mm -hmm. that is going to be in violation of most states' constitutional uh, obligations to provide an adequate level of public education for children. So adequacy is is absolutely the the, the sort of the relevant uh, thing that people look at when they think about school spending levels today.
1: Got it. Got it. Do you have, and I know I'm asking you to editorialize here, but do you think adequacy is a better benchmark than equity in terms of outcomes?
0: Well, I I don't know if I would say if it's better or worse. What I would mm-hmm. say is that given that parents are generally able to exercise their free will in a free society, mm-hmm. um, they will, you know, parents will always try and find a way to give their children a leg up mm-hmm. and parents from more affluent households have more resources in order to do that. So I think it's very, very, very difficult to sort of achieve full equity in the system, um, so probably my sense is if we want to have a system that actually educates all our children, we have to tolerate some amount of 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 inequity in, in input quality. Um, okay. but if we 're going to do so, I would argue we probably want to at least make sure that the those who are sort of born to 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 situations that are less well off have an adequate level of education
1: yeah, and I would say that the big the thing I think folks have to be mindful of as they set these policies and as they endorse certain policies is make sure that that level of adequacy is truly reflective of what's needed for someone to succeed rather than this maybe path of choosing adequacy out of convenience, effectively lowering that what you consider adequate to accommodate people's demand for budget to be diverted elsewhere or what have you. Um, and, And that's kind of you know, one of the, one of the interesting things I I found about your study was that it really attaches some, it attaches some, some hard numbers to uh, the, the outcomes that per pupil spending can, uh, will deliver. So for example, you one of the, one of the interesting things that, that popped out at me was, you know, the that an increase in school funding leads to an increase in additional years of schooling, for example. And I, I guess before we go a little further, like could you explain like why is that important? Why is it important, for example, that somebody sees a you know 0. 0.75 increase in average years of schooling or or one year increase in average years of schooling?
0: That's right. So you know this sort of relates to what we the discussion we're having earlier about test scores, which is that you know, if you, one one measure of how well the schooling system does mm-hmm. is the extent to which people who basically end their schooling uh, have more schooling. So, you know, a system in which everyone is dropping out um, at 16 and not many people are going on to, to college uh, is a system that perhaps is not generating as much output as it could. Mm-hmm. So... If by increasing school spending, uh, particularly focused on low-income areas, which is the way much of the litigation, uh, much of the results of, of school finance litigation has done, um, by showing that areas that got more money, and, and low-income areas in particular that got more money, had more students going to college and graduating high school, um, that basically shows that we can basically narrow some of the gap that exists between people who are born to advantage and disadvantage uh, families.
1: Okay. And that that actually dovetails really well with the next uh, factor that jumped out at me was the fact that there's also, a from from your study, there's a demonstrable impact on education, correct? So again, with a certain amount of per pupil spending or with a certain amount of per pupil spending on disadvantaged districts, you can start to bridge that income gap between those from lower income and those from non-poor school districts, correct?
0: That is exactly right. So you know, one can imagine. So for sure, a pretty good predictor of how well someone does in the labor market, whether they're employed and whether they have a high, you know, high, high, high earnings, uh, is how much education they have. It's, ob- it's obviously not the only predictor, but it's certainly a very powerful predictor of how how much one is going to earn in the labor market. And that's exactly what we see. So consistent with the idea that the increased school spending uh, improves the set of skills that are valued by the labor market, we see that these areas that had increases in school spending, children who went to school in those areas were of school going age at that time. They're more likely to have uh, more years of education and they earn more. And to sort of put some, some dollars and cents onto that, basically what we find um, is that it's almost one for one. So if you increase per pupil spending by about 10%, Mm-hmm. um you end up and to be clear this is increasing it by 10% for the entirety of a person's career so you can imagine sort of increasing school spending by 10% uh and you sort of you don't in for yeah so it's, it's a one time increase that persists over time so it's not increasing it by 10% every year it's sort of a 10% increase that stays uh for the entirety of someone's career over mm-hmm. all of their sort of 12 years of formal schooling. For a child who is exposed to that kind of increase over all their school age years between the ages of 5 and 17, um, they actually earn about 10% more. So it's almost one for one. Uh, So you increase school spending by 10%, uh, their earnings actually go up by about 10%. Now, the increase is a little bit larger for low-income families. So if you're a child from a low-income family, increasing school spending by 10% uh, is associated with earning about 10% more uh, for someone from a not poor families sort of a more affluent families, that increase is only about 5%. But to be clear, uh, 5% is nothing to sneeze at, and it's actually a meaningful increase. It's just not as dramatic as the increase that we observe for the lower income families. So again, this is the idea that by spending more in our schools, not only are we improving outcomes for all kids, but we're also narrowing the gaps between those from uh, low income homes and those who are not from low income homes.
1: Yeah, and the thing probably worth highlighting here too is what you're talking about is a is effectively an increase of ten percent across twelve years that will pay off in an increase of twelve percent across you know forty years or however long they're working. Precisely. So, Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: if you you know if you sort of take those numbers and do uh you know a rate of return calculation, basically. If you had a bunch of money and you thought of our youth as as a financial asset, which is not a good way to think about it, but if you did, um, there's a higher rate of return on educating our children than putting it into the stock market.
1: Yeah, that's that. that I think that's that's a pretty telling, uh, telling, uh, you know, telling stat there, and that's what what really interested me, and and I think what really kind of puzzled me is that Americans on the whole are. And, and I don't necessarily want to discount um, my fellow countrymen here, but I think on the whole, we're fairly apathetic when it comes to education outside of our own little district. But the one idea that always seems to turn heads is anything that shows to turn a profit. And mm-hmm. that, that seems to really get people's uh, people kind of bought into concepts. And I, I don't know if you have any take on this, but my, my question, you know, one of the things I was questioning as I was looking at that is like, why isn't this, why aren't these statistics just being, or, or common knowledge? Why isn't somebody just wallpapering the place with these statistics? Because it seems to paint a very clear picture that if we put tax revenue into schools particularly underperforming schools, we're going to have a more productive workforce. We're going to have people who are going to be making more over their lifetime. Uh, we're also going to have uh, lower instances of adult poverty, which obviously reduces the impact on, uh, on federal spending from the standpoint of any benefits that might go out. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know, why hasn't this become the more popular mantra across advocates of, of public schooling? Do you have any idea?
0: So it's it's a good question. I'll I I'll add one more outcome to this. So there's another yeah. follow up study that um, myself and Rucker Johnson wrote that uses we basically. Interacts. We sort of asked the question whether your do- your school spending dollars uh, in the K-12 system are more or less effective if preceded by uh, Head Start, basically. We're sort of asking the question do the two interact? Uh, in some sense, does uh, one plus one, is that greater than two? And the answer that we find is yes. Um, the reason I bring that up is the other outcome we examined for that study is incarceration. And the finding there is that we also see that uh, spending more money uh, in the K through 12 system uh, absolutely reduces the likelihood that individuals are incarcerated as adults. So there's a whole host of things um, that you sort of save on in the long run um, by spending the money today. And to answer your question directly, why people don't talk about it, you know, I'm, for one, I think some people do talk talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing is, I think it's difficult to to make the case because. The, you know, any, anything where you pay the cost, you pay the, the cost now, but you reap the benefits in 20 years um, is always going to be something that's politically difficult to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is part of the reason why these things are difficult to move the needle, because even if even if we know that we have benefits, uh, you pay for the kids now and you get benefits in 40 years from the perspective of someone who may be a policymaker or a politician, um, they don't necessarily get the benefit of that at the ballot box because they may have retired by that point. Um, and it's, and it's something that's very difficult to just observe. So I think that is part of the reason why these, these arguments, uh, though true may not necessarily resonate with those who are empowered to make something happen.
1: Hola, folks. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Carabo Jackson. And I wanted to take a short break as I have one announcement and one favor to ask you. The first is that if you're looking for additional information on this episode or on prior episodes, you can go to ydhty.com. That is, y is in you, d is in don't, h is in have, and you can fill in the rest.com. You're going to find links to Carabo's study and other resources to better educate yourself on the issues of the day. And finally, shut up your favorite big mouth know-it-all who comes to every gathering with a regurgitation of what their favorite pundit said. (laughs) I don't know anyone like that. Number two, if you haven't already... Share this episode with your friends. You can do it right now on the very device you're listening to at this moment. And I don't know exactly where, as I haven't gotten the technology to hack your phones right yet, but don't let me get that far. Just go ahead, click share, and spread the word. And if you're driving, you may want to pull over before the whole click share part, just an FYI. With that out of the way, back to the show. So getting back to my cynical take that (laughs) Americans look for profit. You seem to hone in on three things, which is a lower student to teacher ratio, longer school years, and increases in teacher salaries as the three areas where this increase in funding was spent. And do you feel, were there any other factors that you could find that played a part, or do you feel those are kind of the three I guess the three factors that people should hone in on when they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we improve the quality of education we're delivering?
0: Right. So I should be very, very clear on this point. So mm-hmm. what we found uh, is that areas that ended up getting like basically a financial willful, a windfall as, mm-hmm. as as a result of school finance litigation, uh, areas like that ended up seeing their, obviously they saw their pupil spending going up um, mm-hmm. and we documented how they spent the money. But so we can say with a high degree of confidence what the effect of that additional money was on student outcomes. Um, but we can't really say for sure exactly what the component, what components of spending mattered because we didn't see sort of a windfall in teacher salary, but not an, a windfall in say class size or something like that. So they all kind of happened as a package deal. So we can't really Mm -hmm. get inside and and sort of unpack which one mattered the most. Um, Having said that, one of the things that we did find was that the schools, as you sort of pointed out, they pretty much spent the money on the things they generally spend money on. So we didn't find any evidence that, you know, when they suddenly got a windfall, they spent it in a vastly different way from the way that they typically spend their money. They kind of spent it on the stuff they typically spend it on. And and, and you know, to be clear, most of the K-12 through 12 budget goes to personnel. About 75% of most school districts' budget is paying for teachers or personnel, uh, teachers and personnel in general. Um, so it's not surprising that that's where most of the money goes. And, you know, reducing class size is one of those things that has been documented to improve outcomes. And a lot of school districts, when they get this additional windfall, that's kind of where it goes. They uh, And in order, in order to compensate teachers for that, they have to spend more money on teachers. So... If you're going to reduce class size, you have to hire more teachers, hence you're spending more money on salaries. Um, and if you're going to extend the, uh, the school year, you have to compensate teachers for the additional time. So that's kind of what we're documenting the money is going. That's not to say that that is the most effective way to spend money. Maybe, maybe there's some magical way to spend money that would be even more effective than that. Um, but what we find is that this is what they did, and it was pretty darn effective.
1: Got it, got it. So so ultimately, there's no kind of direct link between any one element and improved performance. But what you did note is that the money was typically spent in those areas and the outcomes typically improved then, correct? That's right. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. And and I, I think in terms of, and again, for the folks listening here, in terms of what is involved to really bridge that gap. It doesn't seem to be incredibly expensive. So I think in in reading your study, I think the optimal number for funding increase for low, lower income school districts was twenty two point seven percent, and I believe that equated to about twenty eight hundred dollars per student. So you know, I don't know if you can comment on what that does to a federal or state budget, but it doesn't seem to be a back breaking burden. Am I? underestimating it here or no?
0: So it's It's certainly not a small amount of money. There's no question mm-hmm. that it's a large increase. Um, but I, I think that's correct. I think it's, it's not something that's outside the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the optimal number, where that sort of came about was we sort of said, well, if you look at the average differences amongst those from high income and low income households, um, if you were to increase per-people spending, and you sort of targeted it to the low-income schools or the areas or the schools that uh, enroll high shares of low-income students, and you increase their per-people spending by about, say, a quarter, roughly speaking, 25%, something around that order of magnitude, Um, that would basically bring the average low-income kid up to where the average non-low-income kid was. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean we're getting rid of all disparities by income. That is not what we're saying. We're just saying that this is sort of bring up the average quite a bit, Um, uh such that the average low income kid would kind of have outcomes that look kind of similar to what the average high income kid would have,
1: okay, okay. It, it, and is there a point where that increase tops out? So let's just say, you know we let's just say uh, all of a sudden the funding becomes available. Is there a point where we kind of exceed the where where I guess the investment outweighs the gains?
0: that's that's an excellent question. So, you know some of the arguments that have been made, by sort of opponents of the opponents of increases in school spending is that well, while it may be true that school spending matters when you 're looking at the difference between spending two thousand dollars per child and three thousand dollars per child, uh, when we 're talking about the differences between ten thousand and eleven thousand it doesn 't really matter that much that there's an argument that is being made on, on like that, and the argument goes that well, you know perhaps. When you get to that level of spending, the difference basically means am I getting Chromebooks as opposed to iPads or something when iPads are fancier. But in terms of student achievement, you're not going to really see much action. Now, I think there's, there's an element of truth to the, to the idea that going from 2 to 3, uh, that effect is going to be much bigger than the effect from going from 10 to 11. So that's definitely true, and we find evidence of that in our data. But that's not really the relevant question. The relevant question is, at our current spending levels, uh, is it the case that we're still getting enough of an increase in outcomes to make it worth its while? And the answer is unambiguously
1: yes. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So maybe there is a ceiling, but we certainly aren't in danger of hitting hit it. it. Yes. yes okay. Right. Okay. And, the other okay. Thing
0: which is, and, and this is kind of a subtle point, but the other thing which I think should be pointed out is, the way in which school spending numbers are, are are sort of communicated is looking at sort of national averages so if someone says for example oh on average we spend you know twice as much in schools in 2017 or in 2020 than we did in 1980 that that may be true but that does not mean that every single school has had their spending go up. Has had their spending double.
1: Mm. What
0: likely is happening is that there are some schools like Rondout that has seen their spending go from twelve thousand to twenty eight thousand dollars, and Ridge may have seen theirs go up from five thousand to 7,000. So it's not the key. There's there's vast disparities nationally in how much uh, money is going to individual school districts. And if you look within districts, and this is something that a lot of uh, people are not really aware of, if you look within school districts, there's disparities within schools.
1: Yeah. Well, I even think think in in my own state of Massachusetts, where if you were to break down United States into countries, uh, we would we would rank at the top in terms of per-pupil per pupil spending as a nation, but also rank in the top in terms of education amongst nations. That is correct. Uh, if you were to move that over to a lower-performing state like Mississippi, you'd see a much different, uh, different dynamic. So yeah, I think, I think quoting the averages is, 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 a, is a bit of a dangerous overgeneralization. It does seem to me that with the large amount of money being spent on education, in the united states uh there is definitely a keen interest on the side of the private sector to get access to some of that funding and and it and when i look at especially initiatives such as charter schools where there is a for-profit motive to uh, getting into the education space it seems that a lot of times the inequities created by uh lower funding or the issues created by lower funding are often blamed on the school and then that's used to make the case for this that make the case for this sort of for-profit enterprise
0: I think yes and no mm-hmm. so my my sense is that. The areas typically that tend to have a lot of inflow of charter schools or vouchers tend to be schools that are, tend to be areas uh, that are ripe for it, which means you have a population of parents who are motivated to get uh, out of the schooling system that they're in um, and perhaps have an ability to pay for that. So that's typically what, I mean, sort of makes sense from Mm -hmm. the perspective of a business. That's how it would work. Um, So for sure, the low levels of spending, which would tend to constrain outcomes. Is in part responsible for that. So, in terms of what we should do about it, you know, I don't know that it's. I don't know that I would necessarily pit one against the other. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's necessary to think about the world in that kind of a binary way, where it's like where either we fund our public schools, or I sorry, either we fund our traditional public schools, or we have more market-based solutions in our public education system. My sense is that some market-based solutions do have some positive effects. For example. Um, you know there are some charter school models that have been shown to be highly effective now on average i'm not saying all charter schools are amazing and they certainly are not but because we've had this sort of charter school movement we now are aware of some charter school models are actually effective and we can now start using some of the things that we learn from charter schools and inject those policies back into the traditional public schooling system um the kind of thing that comes to mind is like the turnaround model. If you look at the school imp- improvement grants, uh, research on that has shown that when they use the additional money from the from the school improvement grants and they use it for a turnaround model uh, and using a lot of the policies that have been pretty effective in sort of the high high achieving charters, you saw improved outcomes in those schools as well. So uh, on the one hand, I think having those market-based solutions is actually kind of good for uh, Kind of like a a practice ground to sort of figure out what models might might work versus what might not work, um, and then we can sort of use that in the traditional public school system. So I think there's a place for them, mm-hmm. um, and I think, but I also don't think it's an ex- having some market based solution where some kids can go to a charter school is any excuse to not invest in the traditional public schools. So I don't I don't see it as a binary. Um, Got it. In that respect.
1: Got it. Got it. I think very often, and again for lay people like myself it's almost presented as an either or or, or in a way and and if i'm hearing you correctly really really your sense is that you know the charter schools do serve a do, do serve a purpose at this point not to the detriment of public education and as long as they again don't serve that purpose to the detriment of public education there's some benefit that can come out of it is that is that correct i think that's exactly right yes got it
0: I just want to talk about the deficiencies in a lot of the other evidence on whether school spending matters. One thing that's really important to keep in mind is that there are people, you know, social scientists have been trying to figure out the effect of money on student outcomes for years. The first study to sort of convincingly link school spending to student outcomes is the Coleman Report. Mm-hmm. Um, that was written in 1963. So it's, it's pretty it's, it's, it was a groundbreaking study of the time. No one had ever gotten data uh, with that level of resolution, the student level, look, look at their family background, and all these sorts of things. So it was absolutely a groundbreaking study. Um, however, the analysis that was done was uh, basically running correlations. Um, and the it would not sort of pass the standards of evidence that social scientists use today. What he and his team showed was that if you look at the relationship between sort of school spending and student outcomes, that that relationship was relatively weak. It wasn't zero. It wasn't like it wasn't there, but it was relatively weak once you control for things like family background. So his conclusion and that of the team was that, well, family background seems to matter a lot more than things like school spending. The problem with a study like that um, is that they could be subject to considerable biases. So I can give you an example of what I mean. There may be some school that spends a lot of money Um, on kids. And that school may actually enroll a very high share of lower income kids. Uh, So you might look at that and say, well, look, in in this area, this school has a lot of lower income kids and they're spending a lot of money More money than the more affluent schools, in fact, and the outcomes in that school that has very high shares of lower-income kids are not good. Therefore, money wouldn't matter. Now, I've seen cases like this, and if you sort of zero in, you might find that, oh, it turns out that school that spends a lot of money on the lower-income kids actually has a very, very, very high share of children who have special needs. When you start comparing, making comparisons across schools like that, um, you're not necessarily making an apples-to-apples comparison. We're comparing a high-poverty school that has a high fraction of students who may have special needs or other schools that have a high fraction of children who are uh, who don't speak English and, be- and therefore have additional money to support uh, or, um, basically English, English, English learning programs. So when we're making these comparisons, we're not making an apples-to-apples comparison. So basically, if you look between... 1963 and around 2000, there have been scores of studies that have been basically written showing that if you correlate school spending and student outcomes, you get sort of relatively weak effects. Now, what we do, which is very different from those studies, is we say, look, if you want to know whether a policy to increase spending matters, you need to examine a policy. We looked at what happened when there was a successful school finance litigation uh, requiring that... The state inject additional money to fund schools that were previously not spending enough money on their on on the students, and then we look to see what happens to kids uh, who attended those schools before versus after this infusion of cash that came from the come, came from the state. Pretty much every single one of those studies that examines the effect of a particular policy that increased school spending finds that student outcomes improve.
1: And you've given some numbers to, I think, something that I've said for many years, which is, you know, the town I live in now is, uh, from a socioeconomic background, very diverse, right? So we have uh, public housing on one side and mansions on the other and then everybody in between. And statistically speaking, if you're looking straight from a test score standpoint, uh, our district scores lower than wealthier districts that, uh, you know, neighboring wealthier districts. Um, But I I think that's just one part of the puzzle, not to say issues at home or issues of poverty necessarily determine how you're going to do in school. But if you have a higher instance, for example, of Mm -hmm. food insecure households, you're going to have a lower academic performance as a result. Or if you have a number of people in food insecure households who are on uh reduced lunch for example or or free breakfast things like that that's going to impact the balance sheet of a school district and so what we'll get for our dollar is going to be far different than again what you might have in a more homogenous community in the upper tiers income wise uh, that that is exactly right
0: and that, so that kind of confounding is is precisely something that was is it's all the previous work On relating school spending to student outcomes is just rife with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not because the researchers weren't smart. It's just because they maybe didn't have access to high quality data. And some of the statistical tools that we use today um, to examine the data just didn't exist. So that's exactly the kind of analysis that, you know, it's nice to tell a story, but it tells you nothing about what the effect of increased school spending would be. So just one thing that I think is helpful to sort of point out is that what distinguishes a study like, like ours from a lot of this earlier this previous work is, you know, we try to find a, a change in school spending caused by policy. So we're analyzing a specific policy in order to inform policy. But the other thing we do is that we are we go through pains to show that the increases in spending that we that we that we identify are not related to all these differences in socioeconomic status that you're describing. So what we mm-hmm. do is we say, look, we're going to look at a particular schooling district in say 1995. And then in 1996, where in 1995 and 1996, it was the same school districts, It was the same set of students, same set of teachers. But in 1996, suddenly their school spending levels went up by 10%. And then we're going to basically say, look, we're going to look at a kid who was in that school in 1995 compared to the kid who was in that school in 1996. Mm-hmm. And we're going to say it was a kid who was exposed to those spending increases for a longer period of time. Again, kids from the same school. Do they have better outcomes? And we even show that even if you look at kids within the same families, we find that. So you look at a kid, you look at a family, they're at the same school, They have the same parents, but one kid is older than the other one. The younger kid is exposed to higher levels of per pupil spending because maybe the older kid graduated high school before this infusion of cash came from the state. The younger one was in school when it happened. And we find that the younger sibling that is exposed to higher levels of school spending because they were exposed to this infusion of cash, they have higher years of education. They have higher earnings as an adult.
1: Yes, 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 yes. Since you basically isolated every factor out except for school spending. as
0: much as, as much as we could. I you know I I don't want to I would never say that we did everything and we isolated everything. Yeah. But we certainly isolate a heck of a lot more than the previous work
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. So, final question for you. Um you know, one of the conclusions I've started to reach in the interviews I've done is that this current conversation around education, which really right now seems focused in around university education, cost of college, whether it should be free, whether it should not be, seems to me a bit wrong headed for, for two reasons. Uh, number one, not every occupation requires a college degree, so the thing I say to a lot of people is if you 're ever wondering what your kids should do for a living, try getting an electrician to return your calls because you know they're, they, they are they are not easy to find um, and then b the second part is that college education is only as good as you're prepared for it in the twelve prior years of education and so you know my last question for you is with the talk of increasing spending and in education and especially this focus on college, it seems to me that your conclusions would indicate that that money might actually be better spent on the K-12 to level than the university level. Am I wrong there, do you feel? or
0: So y- you're raising some good points. I don't know if you're wrong or you're right. So mm-hmm. the way that I would think about this or the way, I think the appropriate way to think about this is kind of the way that we would think about an asset. So like if you had, you know, you sort of basically, you put your money, Every so you could think of every dollar that someone' that the, that some policymaker spends, they can either spend it in the K through12 system or they can spend it on higher ed. Mm-hmm. and for every single dollar, when, the way to maximize outcomes for, for society is such that the, the last dollar that you spend should be equally effective in both settings and if it wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean the, the basic logic would be if it weren't the case, if I could spend if I could get more of my more bang for my buck by spending more in higher ed. Then I should be spending less than I should be spending less in the k through twelve and more in higher ed or vice versa mm-hmm. and that kind of relates so that 's kind of the, the way that I would think about it so I think what's true is is the following I think it's certainly true that given that many professions don't require higher education uh in order to be effective, there probably should be some Restructuring of our of our public schools, such that we we provide greater sort of more training that are sort of geared towards um, jobs that are needed in our society. I think that's certainly true. Um, you know, Germany is a good example um, where they have an apprenticeship system where people sort of decide at some stage to go into sort of sort of a more uh, career oriented track. Now, you know, I'm not saying we should adopt the German system, but you know, that that system does appear to work pretty well and we could probably learn something from from observing how their system works. Um, and but I think it's certainly true that thinking that every single child uh, is going to go to college and therefore that should be the aim of every child, I think is probably r- wrong-headed. Um so that's certainly true. Whether that means we should be spending less on college and more in the K-12 system, I I don't know. Um but it's also true that Arguably, the more that we spend in the K through 12 system, actually, the better we're going to get. Sort of, you, you can benefit more from the dollars you spend in the K th- in the on higher ed. So, if we spend more money to make sure kids are prepared when they go to college, they may benefit more from attending those colleges. And in those kinds of situations, uh, then it may very well be. Uh, worthwhile to divert money from the higher education system towards the K through 12 system but i don't know what i don't know if we're at that point yet i haven't seen any yeah. data to suggest that we are but in principle uh, those those are interesting things to think about
1: yeah and i think bottom line is is getting back to your comment about hitting the ceiling i think we are certainly not in danger of overfunding either just yet so any improvement would be better
0: right i mean and the last thing i would say is when it comes to the idea of optimizing your 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 dollar within the higher education system and the K through 12 system, I would also bring in uh, early childhood education into the into this equation. Think about educating all the way from sort of eight, you know, pre K all the way through through college. Uh, you know, we do. I think we should think about that in a little bit more of a seamless way where you think about the individuals who are going to make their way through the system. But you know, one thing that is clear is that probably uh, we could probably divert some money from very, very well-funded public uh, or very, very well-funded higher education institutions towards K through 12 schools that are poorly funded, for example. That probably would be something that would improve increase outcomes overall. Okay. Uh, by the same, same logic, we could probably divert money from a very well-funded K-12 system like Rondout and spend that on early childhood education for low-income districts. That would probably increase overall outcomes as well. So mm-hmm. there are definitely ways to reallocate money to increase the output that we get for the dollars that we spend. And I don't know that we're necessarily thinking about systems as interconnected in that way yet, but I yeah. think we should.
1: Okay. Here's a math problem for you. There are approximately 56.6 million students in the U.S., 30 million of whom qualify for free or reduced lunch. Now that number is higher than the 21% who live in poverty, but we're gonna run with the larger numbers so we overestimate rather than underestimate things. Now, a 25% increase in spending on lower income students, arguably the ones who receive the least amount of funding, would bring them on par with the average student. But I'm gonna do some lazy math here and take the $2,800 per pupil increase from Carabos paper. So, 30 million times 2,800 equals $84 billion, if you didn't get it already. Now, that's a lot of money. It's about 84 billion more than I have right now to give you a point of reference, however, when compared to the $70 billion we spend on education, it seems a bit more reasonable. Now, here's another question for you. Do you know what else costs $80 billion? The US prison system. And based on Carrabo's study, students who receive higher per-pupil spending have lower instances of adult poverty and incarceration. Those are two long-term drains on the system. And if a dollar of federal debt results in a 10% increase in lifetime earnings, and by that, an increase in tax receipts over the 40 some odd years that person's working, why is increasing funding even a debate? You know, we're taking out money on dumber things, and I'll leave it to all of you to decide what those dumber things are. Of course, all of this sounds really easy sitting here behind a mic, but it's going to take some hard decisions around how we allocate funding to public education to make this happen. And folks from better funded school districts may have to see their federal assistance drop, which they're not going to be happy about. And the mechanism that makes school systems dependent on local property taxes won't be able to stay in its current form. Again, not easy to change, but neither is getting six pack abs. And the question for you is, are we as a country going to get in shape or die of obesity? Swing by YDHTY.com and let me know. So, from the last two episodes, we know that an increase in funding will help, but we still don't know where to spend it. So to answer that question, I've invited Pete Bilsma, Director of Assessment and Program Evaluation for the Mukilteo School District in Washington and co-author of the report, Nine Characteristics of High-Performing Schools, to join me. He helped compile a report on schools that outperform their peers in test scores and boiled down the differentiators. There are nine of them, in case you didn't catch it from the last title. And they have way more to do with culture and expectations than they do with class size or technology. Hope you'll join me. As always, theme music by KrelerTac. You Don't Have to Yell is produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney. All else courtesy of moi, Dan Sally. Until the next.